All right, if you have your Bibles, it, I'm, I'm excited, but at the same time kind of sad. We're wrapping up our, our study in Colossians uh, this morning, uh, Colossians chapter 4. If you don't know where that is in your Bible, that's okay. It's kind of right in the middle of the uh, New Testament. There's four letters that Paul wrote, um, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians is the last one. It's that short letter uh, near the end. Uh, we're going to start in verse 2 and read through uh, verse 18. So if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Uh, we've also got it printed uh, in the bulletin for you. Um, you know, it, it is, like I said, it was with a little sadness, and we're kind of wrapping up um, this book of, of Colossians. And here's, here's one reason why um, I think I've enjoyed it so much. Uh, Paul is writing to a young church. This is, this is a very, very young church plant that's kind of out on the fringe of, of what is this, this new gospel expansion. And not in a vain kind of way, but there's just a number of similarities between what's going on in Colossa and what's going on in Salina with us. We, too, are a very young church plant. Uh, we, too, are kind of on the edge of this new Dallas urban sprawl um, that is, is spreading northward. Um, and we're a collection of people from kind of all over the board, uh, much like Colossa was uh, at the time when, when Paul wrote this. So kind of like a, like a good big brother and uh, a leader in the church, um, what, what Paul is going to do is just remind us of the basics this morning, just the basics of church. We have a way of complicating things. We have a way of, of taking things and making them more difficult than we should. And so Paul, like, again, like a good big brother, is going to say, look, here's Here's the basics. Here's what you need to know as he closes his letter out uh, to this church. Uh, that being said, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. This is Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is also called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. 
and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I really don't mind saying this. Um, I watch a lot of documentaries. I'm not a nerd. Um, I watch them for two reasons. One is because um, they're incredibly fascinating. And number two, that's where I get a majority of my sermon illustrations. Um, and I watched one recently, and it was, it was a fascinating um, documentary called Abstract. It's on Netflix. And there's multiple episodes and there's two seasons. And, and what, this, um, what this documentary does is it follows around artists. And uh, while they're following this artist, they're, they're watching how they do their particular trade or, or their particular art. Um, they follow around a shoe designer from Nike and where he gets his inspiration for all the different kind of shoes. You know, you kind of see that, that Nike produces. There's an architect. They follow a well-known world architect. Um, but the one I'm interested in, in, in sharing with you this morning is an illustrator. His name is Christoph Niemann, and he's a German that moved to New York, uh, and he's an illustrator. He does drawings. And a number of his drawings have appeared on the front of The New Yorker, that magazine. Maybe you've heard of that magazine. Um, a lot of those illustrations uh, have been his. And, and here's what was so fascinating about his ep- episodes, about 45 minutes, uh, they're following him around, and, and the, the narrator asks him, you know, when it comes to, like, the inspiration for your drawings, um, you know, this, this creativity, where does it come from? Uh, how do you work? Where do you get inspired? Where do you come up with these images and these ideas? How do you do it? And not only how do you do it, how do you do it in such short time? How do you do it on a deadline? And again, he, he's German, and he's kind of moved to New York, so he's kind of saying this with a German accent. He kind of knocks American culture a little bit, um, and he kind of intimates, you know, we as Americans kind of tend to romanticize inspiration. And he said, you know, he said, I did this. When I moved to the, to the United States and I started drawing, you know, I went to the coffee shop. I was sitting by the fireplace. I, I was listening to the noise of the coffee shop, and I was watching, you know, people walking by out on the sidewalk, and I thought, you know, this is where I'm going to get inspired. This is where my ideas are going to come from. And he said, what I found is, is exactly the opposite. Um, I couldn't focus. I couldn't work here. And he said, what I've learned over time is that if I want inspiration, I need quiet. I need simplicity. I need discipline. And we, we, don't, we don't tend to associate those two together, right? Inspiration, creativity, life with discipline, with quiet, with solitude. Um, he quotes another um, artist in this documentary. The other artist, his name is, is Chuck Close, and he said this. He said, inspiration is for amateurs. He said, we professionals just go to work every morning. And in doing so, this relieves a lot of the pressure to create. It's not about waiting around for hours for this moment where inspiration strikes. It's about showing up. It's about getting started. And then something amazing happens or it doesn't happen. All that matters is that you enable a chance for something to happen. 
And if you were to look at his workstation where he, he does his drawings, there's, there's two white tables. There's two white lamps. It's a room that's, that's white, and it's got some yellow in it, but it's a very, very plain room. He's got a stack of paper, a pile of pencils, and he's got a small box of Legos. And because he draws, and, and a lot of his ideas are very imagistic, he's, he's always fiddling with, with Legos to kind of create ideas that kind of helps him come up with, with images and ideas. And so you would expect this room to be full of art. You expect this room to be full of music, full of ideas, full of noise and pop, but it's not. It's very simple. It's very quiet. It's very basic. And I wonder if, if we, as, as a church, if we've kind of romanticized church in a way, and in doing so, we've kind of gotten away from the basics. We're, Paul, Paul is, is, is telling this church in, in Colossae and, and us this morning, hey, if it ever gets complicated, here's what you go back to. Here's the simplicity. Here's the discipline. Here's the quiet. It's not very glamorous. This list he's about to give is not woke, culturally speaking. You don't look at this and go, that's fresh. That's new. It's old. It's very old. It's very simple. But here's that, that great irony, that great paradox. It's, it's when we're quiet. It's when things are simple. It's when there's discipline. It's when we do the same things over and over again. That's where the magic happens. That's where the inspiration happens. Do you see that paradox? This artist understood it. And I think he's on to something that God actually created in us. Uh, this need to simplify. This need to be disciplined. And in doing so, that's where inspiration comes from. Here's, here's the three points this morning. And again, nothing glamorous. Uh, we're to pray for one another. We're to pursue one another. And we're to embrace one another. That's how Paul is going to end this letter to the Colossians. I leave you with these three things. The great father of the church, Paul. Pray for one another. Pursue one another. And embrace one another. Uh, first, we are to pray uh, for one another. Now, <clears throat> don't miss this. I almost did in my study. Um, in a number of the letters um, that Paul has written, uh, Paul has actually written down prayers for the church, for other people. We don't have that here in chapter 4. Instead, what we have is Paul asking the church in Colossae to pray for him. And let me illustrate why this point, I think, is so important to bring up this morning uh, this way. I had a friend who uh, was visiting and having a conversation with uh, Dr. Billy Graham uh, a long time ago, and he, his visit just happened to coincide with 9-11. So that was a Tuesday morning, if I remember correctly, 9-11, and my friend was staying at the house of Dr. Billy Graham. So that morning, they woke up to the news. They woke up to the tragedy. And they're kind of processing it together. And then Dr. Graham's church calls and says, we need to have a meeting tonight. We need to pray. Uh, we need you to share. And so Dr. Graham accepted, you know, the invitation to, to share and to preach that night at church. And so he hung up the phone, Dr. Graham did, and he, you know, still kind of in his, in his PJs, as my friend is, you know, kind of telling the story. With a Bible and a notepad and a pen, he sits down in a chair, and across from him, my, my friend is sitting. And here's what Dr. Graham did. He looked over to my friend, and he said, genuinely, and, and heartfelt, he said, what do I say? What do I say? 
Uh, my friend sensed the irony very, very quickly in that moment, because on the one hand, over here, you have this veteran, this, this father in the faith who has been tried and tested and has been faithful to the gospel message, years, decades of experience. And then over here in this chair, you have a seminary grad. <laughs> Why is Dr. Graham asking him what he should do? It should be the other way around, right? Um, notice what Paul is doing in this passage. Though this church is young, though this church probably doesn't have the theology that Paul does, what does Paul ask of them? Would you pray for me? Would you pray for us? This, is, this will be the third week I make this point, and I, I haven't done it intentionally, but, but here, before you hear that command to pray for one another, do you hear the compliment? And what Paul is asking here, though, though, though your church is very, very young, and we've only been meeting for, you know, nine months as a church, Paul is no closer to Christ than the Colossians are. The same spirit that is in Paul is in the church in Colossae. He sees them as peers. He sees them as partners in this gospel ministry. He covets their prayers and asks them for it. Can you, can you see the compliment there? And, and this, is, this is, you know, usually where, you know, our, our cynicism and our doubt kicks in, especially as, as young believers or even as a church plant, like, who are we? We're, we're small. What can we do? Or, or maybe sometimes your, your own private prayer life is hijacked. Uh, before you even start praying, before you even start making a request, because you think, you know, who am I in, in this, you know, this corner of the world that God would listen to me? There's so many other bigger problems out there. Why would God listen to me? Why would God care about what's going on in my life? Colossian prayers matter. Your prayers matter. New City's prayers matter. St. Philip's prayers matter. Why? Because we have been fully united to Christ, fully brought into this fellowship, peers with Paul, peers with Luke, peers with Barnabas, so much so that they covet our prayers. We don't have to wait and grow up to be a church. We can be a church right now through the ministry of prayer. I almost missed that point in my study. I actually went back and, and wrote it in. Um, it meant that much to me. That's who should pray. Well, what should we be praying for? Um, there's a couple things here on the list that Paul prays for. And, 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 and notice Paul asks in verse 3 uh, that God may open to us a door. And you might think, well, this is where Paul's going to ask that the door to be opened is the door to his jail cell, right? Um, Paul is in prison when he's writing uh, this letter to the Colossian church. But that's not the door he wants the Lord to open. Did you notice that God may open us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison? What Paul's heart is, what his, his greatest desire from the bottom of this Roman jail cell is that the gospel keep moving forward, that more cities and more provinces like, the, like this Greek city of the Colossians that more are converted to Christianity. 
that this mystery that has been unknown for, for so long is now revealed to new people, that eyes are open, that ears are unstopped, that hearts are changed, that the gospel moves forward. It doesn't stop. It's not paralyzed. That it goes forward. That's what he prays for. <clears throat> so to put it another way, if God were to answer every one of your prayers right now, all of the prayers that you've asked for in the past week, if, every, if he answered it with yes, if God answered every one of your prayers, <clears throat> how many people would be converted? And how many churches would be planted? How many lives would be changed? That's what Paul is asking prayer for, that the gospel keep moving forward. That's one of the basics of being a church, is praying for the expansion of this gospel. If God answered our prayers, how many people would be converted instantaneously? Are we praying for that? But prayer is hard. Even as a pastor, prayer is hard. And Paul knows this. That's why he says, you know, when you pray, do it steadfastly. You know, typically what we do with prayer is we pray once. We didn't get the answer when we wanted it, and we say, God doesn't care. This is where we need to take a page uh, out of the journal of the persistent widow. Um, our persistence kind of shows us what, what, what we really value, what's important to us, what we keep praying for, what we keep petitioning the Lord for. He's never exasperated by the quantity of our prayers. Uh, we are usually exasperated and, and, and tire of constantly petitioning God. He doesn't tire. We do. That's why Paul says, pray steadfastly. Keep praying. And, and not just steadfastly, but, but do it watchfully. Um, the New Testament says there, there's a prayer that when you pray it, you know, verbally you're asking God to do, to do something and to do something miraculous, but inside you're going, that'll never happen. Paul says watchfully pray. So not, not only ask, and not only ask multiple times, but ask with the humble expectation that God is going to act. Because even as, as parents or peers, if someone just says like, you know, I was going to ask you for a favor, but I knew the answer was going to be no. <laughs> we've, we've had that happen to us before, right? I, I was going to ask you for something, but I, but I know you're going to say no. That's not how you want to be asked, right? You want to be generous. You want to be kind. So does our Father. You have that humble expectation that he is gonna, He's going to answer you. But he says also do it with thanksgiving. Be steadfast in your prayers. Do it watchfully, but be thankful. Um, there's a way to pray steadfastly, and there's a way to pray watchfully. And when the Lord responds, or if the Lord gives us what we ask for, if there's an absence of thankfulness, that tells us something about ourselves. Um, that tells us that we, we struggle with entitlement that we think God owes us blessing or favor. Um, maybe you've never noticed that about your, uh, about your own heart and your prayer life. Um, is there a season of thankfulness? When the Lord answers, do you respond? It's hard for us to do that. That's praying for one another. That's the first basic. The second is the pursuit of one another. So first we should pray. Uh, the second is pursuit. Again, notice uh, in, in this point who Paul is talking to. Paul is talking to 
a local church. Paul is not talking to a pastor's conference. Paul is not talking to an elder or deacon conference. Paul is talking to the church in Colossae, and he says, hey, when you're done reading it, send this letter to the church in Laodicea, and the letter I sent them, you read it as well. So who is the audience that Paul is talking to when he says, pursue outsiders and walk towards them? He's not talking to pastors. He's talking to us. That is the task. That is the job of the church. And we say, ah, no, 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 that's, that's for evangelists. Paul makes no categories here. He's talking to the church. That is your job, is to move towards outsiders, is to move towards them. That's, that's the audience. And here's, here's again, the, the irony of, of this point. When Paul writes this, when he's saying, you church, move towards these people that are outside the church. When Paul writes this, he's at, he's, he's at the mercy of outsiders, He's in an outsider's prison. He's wearing outsider's chains. And in the same breath and in the same moment, he says, but move towards them. Though you maybe suffer at their hands to the degree that I have, I'm wearing their chains. I'm in their prison. I'm at their mercy. Move towards them. Now, what in the world would make Paul say that? There's only one thing that can make somebody say that, and we'll get to that at the end. I'm going to come back to it. But notice the irony at the mercy of outsiders, suffering at the hands of outsiders, he says, but move towards them. Uh, That moving is a deliberate action. He uses the word here, walk, in verse 5. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. A couple things about how we're supposed to do do this. If you're walking uh, towards outsiders, what that signals is deliberate and intentional movement, right? So, um, here's the implication. If we're to move towards outsiders, where are they? If you were to move towards outsiders, non-believers in Salina, where would you go? You have to know where you're going. You have to know where they are if you want to start moving in that direction. Moving towards outsiders can't be passive, This means we can't wait for for people to come to us. This means we're not going to be a church where it's like, well, well, let's just call it 50-50 and we'll meet you halfway. Uh, And we're not going to set up a worship service that if they come here, we try to make them feel welcome. That's that's important, but that can't be it. Paul says there's something else here. It's not 50-50. It's not you come to us. It's we are coming to you. We are walking towards outsiders. It's deliberate movement, deliberate action. How we're to do this, he gives uh, a couple points here. Uh, Look back at verse 5. He doesn't say just walk towards outsiders. He says walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Sometimes the church's posture towards outsiders is is like approaching an animal in the wild. Like, don't disturb it. Don't poke it with a stick. Just just look at it. Be careful. Be careful. Or, Or it might attack, right? That's not, that's not what Paul is getting at here when he says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders. He's talking about your wisdom. He's talking about your integrity. Walk in such a way that when people see your life, they don't, they don't accuse you of that hypocrisy. If you say you belong to Jesus, but you're acting another way. You say you belong to this new humanity. You're following this, this new pattern of what life is supposed to look like in this person of Jesus Christ that God has set up, but you're doing something entirely different. 
Wisdom is that skill and the art of godly living. He's talking to the church. He's saying, you, be wise with your life. Be skillful in the way you live your life because people are watching and people are engaging with you whether you, whether you know it or not. They see you. And what you do is more important than what you say. So walk, walk in wisdom. There's also a sense of, of urgency here too. Notice that next phrase in verse 5. It says, making the best use of time. Um, this, if, if you were to translate this straight from the Greek, um, this, this verb here means to buy up. It means to, to, to see a deal, to see a bargain, and to purchase it at that moment. Right, it's to take an opportunity when it's presented, because that opportunity may go away. So this is, you know, this is that scene in Indiana Jones where he's got the treasure, and he hears the noise, and he sees that large ball rolling in the background. You know, his, his sense of urgency has just increased. Uh, the church should have a similar sense of urgency, of opportunity, uh, of taking advantage of, of conversations and relationships while we have it. But notice this, and this one is, is just as important as the other two. Notice what Paul says. Not only should you move towards them and move towards them with integrity, with wisdom, but you've got to do it graciously. Look back at verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt. Here's what that means. If you win the argument but you lose the person, you've lost the argument. If you've spoken the truth without love, you have not spoken truth. The goal is the person. Um, the goal is not only just right content, but right presentation. Followers of Christ will have both. They'll have the content, this mystery of the gospel, that is Jesus Christ and His will on this earth, but you're going to do so like salt in your mouth. It gives you flavor. You're going to do, do it joyfully, thankfully. You're going to do it kindly. We're not here to win arguments. We're here to win people. So presentation matters. Last point is this. We should pray for one another, pursue one another. We need to embrace one another. This is the part in, in, in letters, when you're, like when you're reading through books of the Bible that you skip, because you get to names that you can't pronounce, and you're kind of going like, really, what merit is there, or what kind of food, you know, what manna can I draw from these last couple verses of a letter? It just kind of seems like formal greetings. We don't know who these people are. Um, well, let me show you a couple things about these last, um, these last few verses in this passage. In, in these last few verses, there's 11 people mentioned, and there's four cities implied. They think Paul is in Ephesus, uh, in, in, in a Roman prison in Ephesus, but he's also talking to the Colossians, but then there's also Hierapolis and Laodicea. And, and so what you have when you kind of zoom out uh, in this letter, you have Greeks, you have Jews, uh, you have people with means. Uh, like Nympha, and you've got people who are bond servants like Onesima. You have a wide smattering of people just in this last, you know, 11 verses of this passage. And here's what it felt like to me. Uh, a number of years ago, I went to this, um, this, this place in St. Louis that's called the City Museum. And if you ever go to St. Louis, 
If you only see one, don't go see the arch. If you, you can only see one thing in St. Louis, don't see a Cardinals game. Okay, I know. You need to understand what, what I'm saying here when I say that. Don't go see a Cardinals game. Don't go see the arch. You need to go to the city museum. Imagine if uh, Willy Wonka and whoever invented Candyland, that board game, like had a love child and created a space. Um, it's, I don't, I don't know how to describe this place. It's like an indoor pra- playground for children and adults. 14 stories high, slides, ladders, themed layers. Um, you, you can't explore all of it in a day. It's incredibly fascinating. <clears throat> But here's what the creators did with this place. They introduced me to a a new term. It's called urbanite. And maybe you know what that is. I never knew what it was. Urbanite is is leftover concrete. So imagine you've got like a 10-story parking garage. And they're going to demolish it. And they're going to put something else up in its place. All of that concrete that made the, uh, um, the, the parking garage, do you know where it goes, what happens to it? It's useless. It goes to the dump. So what some people have done is, is when you know, a building like that is demolished, they take these, these crumbs, these leftover chunks of concrete. That's what they've called. They've called it urbanite. And what they do is they mix it with other concrete, and they make new forms, new pillars, uh, new buildings, new structures. They take the old. They take what is, is seemingly useless, powerless to do anything else broken, undone, and they make something new and something beautiful out of it. This, this last 11 verses of this passage feels like urbanite. No, just, here, here's just a sample of who is included in these last verses. Um, here in verse uh, 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, if you're a New Testament scholar, you remember Acts 15 and Galatians 2. There was a disagreement between Paul and Mark, and they parted ways, and it was bitter. Acts 15 said it was bitter. So Mark and Barnabas went one way, and Paul and Silas went another. There was a disconnection. There was discord. There was anger. There was frustration. Galatians 2 also hints at it. That when Peter was going back to the old ways, that he took some other Jews down with him. They think that was Mark and Barnabas. So in some ways, um, Mark bailed on Paul. Uh, But notice what he says in verse 10. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome. Welcome him some degree, and we don't know what, to what degree, there's been restoration. There's been some things that have been broken, that have been mended, or, and are starting to mend. There's, there's reconciliation in, in, in this ragtag body of believers that is this new and early church. Welcome Him if He comes to you. That's, that's coming from Paul. That says a lot. And I'm not sure exactly what to do with this next point, but look down at verse 14, the second part. You know, if Mark was one that had previously bailed on Paul, what we know about Demas at the end of verse 14 is, is that sometime down the road, Demas is going to leave. He's going to bail. He's going to leave the work. He's going to go back to the ways of the world. So we're at in one chance you're seeing, you're seeing reconciliation, you're seeing restoration. At the same time, you're going to see brokenness. 
You're going to see people leave. But it's in this context that you embrace one another. You love one another. Uh, there's some here that are wrestling uh, with shame. Um, this is a, a tricky name and a, and a tricky word, uh, but his name is Onesimus. Look back at verse 9. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother. Onesimus was a bondservant that left his master, abandoned his job, abandoned his post, which under Roman law carried with it the curse of death. But Paul advocated on his behalf with Philemon and said, welcome him. Onesimus came to me. He was converted. He became a follower of Christ. Now reconcile with him. Now Onesimus is about to go deliver this, this letter back to Philemon and this letter to the Colossian church. Can you imagine his fear? Can you imagine his guilt, his trepidation, his anxiety in doing so? He's in the letter. And this is, this is interesting too. Back in verse, uh, verse 14, Luke, one who would write more in the New Testament than Paul, uh, is included in this group. Other leaders. Quite a collection, isn't it? Uh, let me close with this. Again, always trying to turn our attention, our eyes, and our affections toward the person and the work of Christ. How is it that Paul can say, welcome, Mark? How is it that, that Paul can say, hey, even despite being in miserable circumstances, I'm at the hands of outsiders I'm wearing their chains, but be kind to them. Move towards them graciously. How is it that Paul can say something like that to us or to this church? It's, it's this. And, and, you know, for the record, Christmas is next week. We'll start the Advent season next week, so this is, this is kind of a preview. Um, Christians and the church is at its best when it's, when it's bearing God's image. When we're, when we're seeing the example of Christ and going, if that's the new humanity, then that's how we ought to act. That's how we ought to believe. That's how we ought to live. So the question is, is did Jesus pursue outsiders? Talk about understatement of like 2019. Did Jesus and, and did God the Father, does he pursue outsiders? Um, what is God's business, you know, for 500, Alex, please? That is God's business is the pursuit of outsiders. And notice this in the gospel. <clears throat> God doesn't say, I'll meet you halfway. I'll come 50% of the way, but you've got to show me something. You've got to come the other 50%. Nor does he say, I'm in heaven, you've got to come to me. That's the only way this is going to work. What does he do? No, he leaves what is comfortable, what is beautiful, what is peaceful, to enter our story, our chaos. Why? To rescue, to claim to come to us. That's why Paul can say this. That's why he can charge us. That's why even in the midst of prison, Paul can say, pursue outsiders. Why? Because isn't that what God did with you and with me? We too were outsiders. Why should we pray? Again, before you hear the command Hear the compliment. This Christ <clears throat> who left what was beautiful, who left what was glorious, who took on flesh to become one of us, who died 
was resurrected on the third day, who ascended into heaven, who occupied the throne of authority, who wears the one and only crown. Did you know that Jesus prays for you? Even though He's the ascended one, even though He wears the crown, even though He's the one in, in, in authority, did you know that Jesus intercedes for you? That He prays for the church? Try to get time with a senator. Try to get time with your boss. And notice what happens. It's hard. It's hard to get access uh, to people with power and to people with privilege. But what Romans 8.34 tells us is that Christ died. He was raised and He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And guess what He is doing with His power and His privilege? He is praying for you. He's interceding for you. He's going to the Father and He's saying, will you bless this church? Will you bless this family? Will you take care of these people? In ways that we forget, in ways that we don't even know how to ask. He's praying for us. That's why we pray for others. That's not to win God's favor, it's because we already have it. But does God embrace us? We're urbanite, we're broken, we're useless. Are we redeemed? Absolutely. And, and, and this is one of those things where, let, you know, because the Bible is, is so full of, of figurative language, um, he's not being figurative here. He's actually being literal. Remember the scene when the prodigal son has, has come back and he's been humbled. You know, the father's not waiting on the porch going, mm, this will be good. I wonder what the excuse is going to be this time. What is it? It's, it's a scandalous and prodigal kind of love. It's get the ring. Get the robe. Let me do what's socially unacceptable. Let me run to my son. And what does he do? He kisses his son. He embraces his son. He welcomes him into his family. And that's what God the Father does with the church. We're embraced. We're welcomed. We're, again, not figuratively, but literally welcomed into his family. And so when we look at our earthly family, when we look out horizontally, now that that, that vertical is, is real and we look out to this body, that's how we can embrace others. That's how we can say to our marks, embrace them, love them, welcome them, and greet them. And we don't have to look at people cynically and just go like, I, I bet that person's going to bail down the road. No, we love and embrace them now and here. We don't bank on what we think people are going to do. Like God, we love them where they are. Uh, let me close this in prayer. Father, would the words of my mouth and now the meditations of all of our hearts over the course of this next week be pleasing in your sight. You, O oh Lord, who are our rock and our redeemer. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.